Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. Coming up in today's episode, this is a shout out to your men. This is a call if you are men, if you have ever worked with a man, if you know a man, if you work in a team with a man. This is a call if you have a father, if you are a father, if you have sons. This is a quest, a call, a movement into action to better include men within mental health services. And I am joined by a consultant psychiatrist as we talk about how to better engage men and and be the difference that makes the difference for men in mental health to make life feel like it's worth living. Hope you'll find it so useful. Please do share this content far and wide. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. I like to introduce you to interesting themes and debates in psychology and today's is going to be a really powerful episode. I am joined by a consultant psychiatrist today, which is a little bit different, but I hope that whatever discipline you are, as you listen to this, and you may not work in mental health at all. You might actually be someone that might find the content in this podcast really empowering and maybe just life changing. We are talking about all things male. How can we better engage men in mental health services? How can we de-shame How can we have better results and give more hope? It was such a pleasure to speak to my guest today. And I hope that you find it to be just the most nourishing, interesting, thought-provoking episode like I did. I will look forward to catching up with you on the other side of this. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. T. Ayadele Ajay. Hi. Good. Hi, Hum. It's nice to be here and thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, thank you for saying yes. We um, crossed paths on LinkedIn. I think originally you'd started commenting on some of my four-minute clinics and then I started commenting on your stuff and then it just got to the stage where we're having big long conversations in the chat and I was like, maybe we should actually have a podcast episode to discuss this. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's, it's it's amazing how many um connections you make on on LinkedIn, or particularly I particularly like LinkedIn because of the professional conversations, and it's really a very interesting place where people have regard for each other. So it, it's my, I, I, it's one of my preferreds. 
um, social media platforms for that reason. Me too. I just I do love the random chats you can have, but um, yeah. I love that you so effortlessly rub up against different disciplines. So Absolutely. you, for example, are a psychiatrist, and I love seeing where we might have shared ground, where we might be able to learn things about each other's profession, and you know potentially what you can do together, such as this. Yeah. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Right. So um, I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I work in the southeast um, of England, um, in the east of Kent. And um, I've been in psychiatry. I started my psychiatry training about 23 years ago. Uh, also, I do run a tripod care emotional wellbeing hub, which is a, an online um, safe, sensitive, sensitive space for people of uh, black ethnic minority and uh, faith communities to come together and look at mental health in a way that is non-threatening and in a way where we can encourage open conversations and sort of normalize things that it's okay not to be okay and to have these conversations in a healthy way. Yeah, such important conversations to have. And we're recording this in November. And this is likely to be going out in January. But I really like the stuff that you were talking um, uh, during men's mental health awareness um, campaigns in November about about kind of wanting to encourage men specifically to talk and to de-shame the process of having feelings, you know, because we are human. It's such important stuff to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and my interaction with men over, I think, more intensively over the last three years, has shown that it, it's not that stereotype is actually a stereotype that men don't talk about their emotions. I found it not to be true. What I'm finding is that men actually, like women, like everyone else, have emotions, but we feel we only let down our guards when we feel safe. Uh, and I think it's really the honors is on society to begin to challenge those stereotypes about men don't talk because it, it's very difficult to beat stereotypes, isn't it? You feel boxed in, and when you are the when when you are the outlier, it, it feels like it feels like swimming against the tide. So if society believes that men should not express emotions, is not okay, is a is a sign of of weakness. For you to then be the man who comes forward and begins to talk emotions can be quite daunting. And that's what I'm hearing from men, really, which is interesting. It really is. And I am the mother of two young boys, but I also have an older brother. He's 17 months older than me, so not massively older. But it's interesting for me to be able to kind of compare and contrast the differences that I've observed from being the sister of a brother um, and then being the mother of two boys whilst also being a psychologist. Um, yeah. Absolutely, we are empowering our young men these days to to talk about emotions, to tap into their feelings. But yeah. this is not this is not easy, I think, certainly for our generation, because it wasn't the way that we've been schooled. We're almost having to learn with them as well. Has that been your experiences too? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more that that um, there's such a generational gap in terms of um, of emotions and um, in terms of men 
been in touch with emotions. I think the older generation, the baby boomers, don't even do emotions at all. Uh, and it, interestingly, that's striking because it's striking because the suicide figures, for instance, three out of four men dying by suicide in the UK, and the the the, the highest age group is the 50 to 59 among men. So that's, that's telling us something, isn't it, about really what's the link between how we feel comfortable about speaking about our emotions and then taking it out on ourselves and then ending up taking our lives. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just something to think about. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, mm, I do hope that we are experiencing a bit of a wave of change, though. For example, I don't know if you saw my post on LinkedIn the other day about what if we were all as um, emotionally sophisticated as, as the average modern seven-year-old. So as I was on my way home from school with my seven-year-old, he started telling me about someone in his class that was basically trying to get him to be her boyfriend. And he didn't want that. He didn't want that. And she was kind of trying to manipulate him and saying, well, I'll invite you to my party if you'll if you'll come, if you'll just be my boyfriend for a day, you know, oh. I'll I'll invite you to my party. And in the end, he basically called her out for gaslight, like, oh, wow. um, you know, and said, I don't I, you know, this is not OK. You can't do this to me. I've said no. I've, I, you know, and and then was able to not only do that in the moment, but then tell me about it as well. And I'm like, gosh. I think I think there's I think there's change happening. I, I think your boy is certainly ahead of the curve. <laughs> it's probably because he's got the benefit of having um, having been like that, having the benefit of um, a clinical psychologist mom um, all the all his growing years for the last seven years, which are very crucial years. But I also do agree that I think things are changing. I think my feeling is that the Gen Zs and the Millennials are. But young men are more open to to discuss their emotions, but but they are also looking for safety. I found that that psychological safety, for better use of a word, I mean, in terms of uh, just really having that safe, sensitive space where men don't feel they are going to be criticised or that they are going to be fixed, because that's the other thing. A, a man by nature wants to feel that they are the king of their castles, even when the castle is in ruin and when everything is not where it should be. Every man still wants to feel like he is in charge. And because men, men are fixers, what we then have with men relationship, PR relationship with men is that as soon as you open your mouth, the other man wants to jump in and tell you the things that you are doing wrong and what you need to fix. and and. That man is just looking for an outlet. He's not looking for somebody to fix his problems. He, he knows that he is in trouble. Um, he knows that um, there are things that need to be done. But he also just wants another pair who is a good listener and who is authentic. Okay, so one of the key ingredients then for creating that safe space is a little bit less talking, a bit more zipping. It's just kind Absolutely. of to hear rather necessarily than to fix yeah absolutely yeah absolutely. and there might be you know things we can suggest or come up with but i guess you know i do you believe in in someone's ability to kind of find their way to healing what's your opinion of that so, so i i believe that there are different parts that we find to 
um, our recovery journey, that our recovery journeys are different. Everyone's recovery journey is unique. It's based on their, their pro probably their childhood experiences, their education, and the expose, their exposure, the things that they've been exposed to in the course of their lives, because that's where they pull resources from when it comes to periods um, of conflict, when it comes to periods of challenges. It's from those places that they draw their resources. So um, I believe that everyone's unique and journey is unique. And that really, even as um, psychiatrists, as psychologists, as therapists, I think our role is to create a safe space um, of sometimes even for coaches and mentors as well, to, to create a place of safety where people can reflect because sometimes we also we live the reality that we live in a busy world, so people can step back and reflect and find their own answers and join their own dots. Yeah, and I, you know, as you were talking, it was making me think about the importance of having a really good relationship with your supervisor, because actually, a key part of managing this work we do is that safe space. You know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being supervised by someone you don't have a good attunement with. But it, it can really wobble you. It doesn't feel safe. It makes it feel like you're being judged and you're being criticised, that you're not good enough. Whereas there's something really containing about that safe space, even therapeutically with as a professional. And so to be able to create that um, for our children and create that for our service users and our clients is is incredible. You know, we might be doing that for the first time ever especially if we work with people that have had complex trauma backgrounds, you know, it's, it's a chance to get it right at whatever stage we're working with um, yeah. either a, a client, a colleague, or, you know, a family system. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I think uh, psychological safety and, and being contained, having that containment, that, that's, um, that space is, is it, it cannot be overemphasized as, as you say, uh, because it's amazing as well what then comes out, the content, um, the interaction that takes place when people feel safe. Because as you say, I, I don't even think it's only the supervisee that benefits. I think the supervisor as well benefits from that interaction because mm -hmm. it helps you to feel safe to also admit sometimes your own vulnerabilities because that's, that's the other issue in terms of really being able to admit that, yes, I'm supervisor, but I'm not the reporter of all knowledge or the, that there, there, there are things that I'm also going through, there are processes that um, it's an organic process for me as well. Mm, yeah. I don't know if you've ever done that exercise, and I'm not going to ask you to give me the answer to this question, but for you to hold in mind where you connect now to the thing that you are most ashamed of? And I, I'm not going to ask you the answer, but if you just take a moment to just think about what that is, and then you imagine having to tell me it, I'm not going to do it. Um, but, you know, being able to do that and, you know, the physical sensations that you might feel as you were to imagine that, you know, you might feel squirming, you might start to sweat, you might start to think, oh no, you know, what's she going to think of me? What's she, look, this is going to be awful. It's going to be broadcast everywhere. It's that mm -hmm. sense of shame, judgment, criticism, um, and how it can kind of really kickstart our fight and flight. And that is what we're essentially asking our clients to do. Certainly at every new assessment, aren't we? You know, yeah. tell a stranger your deepest, darkest thoughts and Absolutely. feelings. Yeah. But that said, it's not as bad as you imagine. 
when it's done, when it's handled well, is it? Yes, that, that that's really. I like the the way you've described described it so graphically because it it just brings it to light. And the interesting thing is when it's done well, it's amazing how many consultations that um, I've been in, particularly as I progress um, and learning the way not to do it and the way to do it. It's amazing how many times I've been in consultations where somebody has said actually. I've just said to you something that I've never said to anyone else in my whole life. Sometimes it's from a 63-year-old man. Sometimes it's from a 54-year-old man. So, and we are thinking, uh, and that strikes me. I'm thinking, oh wow. So for maybe, maybe the maybe 63-year-old man. So he's been conscious about his thoughts and about his well-being maybe for the last 55 or 55 years, and he's been carrying that around. Um, and and it just I think it, it it tells me how much how how much of the safety we can create and how it can trigger somebody's um, or, or set up up uh, initiate somebody's recovery process by doing it right. And sometimes people don't engage because they are worried about what they're going to find. People don't want to come to psychiatric consultations. They think it's a it's a, almost like a death sentence being referred to a psychiatrist. And, and because of the fear of the unknown, um, people don't engage. And of course, what then happens sadly is that outcomes are worse because of poor, um, because of the delayed um, intervention. Yeah, such incredibly powerful and privileged stuff to be part of, isn't it? And to be potentially the difference that makes the difference and to, yeah, get in there early enough before things spiral. So quite often during a postnatal period, actually, for men can be really tricky after they've become a father for the first time. Perhaps they've, you know, witnessed a traumatic birth. Perhaps they're worried for the life of their partner and their child. And then they've struggled with that for years and years and years. And then kind of meet me when their child's 15, 18, 20, whatever. And we're then processing that birth trauma that's impacted on their ability to parent. It might have impacted on their ability to grandparent, you know, to run their lives. And had we been able to see them at a sooner period, it would have just been liberating for them. And so I absolutely echo what you say about do it now you know do it now because so many times people have said to me oh oh well I wish I had done this sooner because actually it you know it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be yeah it's interesting you, you say that in terms of really encouraging anyone who feels that they're at that point in which they're contemplating to just do it now because that same message is what I hear all the time when people say, well, actually, I wish I'd done it sooner. It's not half as threatening as I um, expected it to be. But also, I didn't expect that it was going to be such a beneficial process in terms of really the, the it's like I dreaded coming, um, having these encounters. But now I'm looking forward to it after a few sessions because I can actually feel that things are changing and moving in the right direction. So um, do it now is, 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 is the same message that will echo um, to anyone yeah. who is contemplating. And do you know what message I think is now becoming unhelpful about mental health support and therapy and intervention? It's one that I've heard lately quite a lot is that people are saying to me, well, I know it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
while I'm working with you. And people are like, I didn't do it because I couldn't afford for it to get any worse. Yeah. But for, for yeah. me, it's like, actually, if we're managing you well and helping you within your window of tolerance, we're not going to do things that are outside of your level of comfortability. Yeah. So yeah. please, if I guess if, if anyone's listening to this thinking, I can't afford for it to get worse before yeah. it gets better, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily what happens. What's your view on that? I, I couldn't agree more because I think that it's important. We, I think the, the role of the professional, be it a therapist, the psychiatrist, the clinical psychologist, or the psychotherapist, is to create that safety and containment. And I think part of our responsibilities is to help the person who is coming into that session to be able to manage some of the distress that they may feel, um, whatever it is. Um, so... So part of the, the offer is to be able to manage the situation, whatever arises in the context of coming to um, to to those sessions for the first time. So really, I, I absolutely agree that it can be very damaging because it could actually, because people don't understand what that means. It's going to get worse before it gets better. How long is a piece of string here? And somebody's already probably dealing with um, recurrent panic attacks who are having flashbacks who are having all of the, they don't want to they, they can't imagine what it's going to be like to be uh, for things to get worse so really that's a message that should be very clearly spelled out rather than just throwing it at it as a cliche it's going to get worse before it gets better because we are going to be there to hold any anyone's hands when they come into that space that's probably what we should be saying i feel Maybe we just change it to it's going to get better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Because it does get better. Mm. Uh, and perhaps more people who, for whom it's got better should really, particularly people who have clout, people who have a platform, people who are celebrities, people who are role models in society, really need to be talking about um, the fact that, yes, it, it, it does get better. I, I, I took a chance on myself and I'm glad I did. Um, I think that's also an important message to put out there. Yeah, and when someone... It's more men who do say this to me, actually, than women. When somebody says, if I hadn't met you, I would have ended my life, oh. you know, and now I have hope for the future. It's it, it's real. It happens. It You know, this can transform people's lives and then transform the next generation too. I like the generational part of what you just mentioned in terms of generation, because really we do know, for instance, that um, adverse childhood experiences, that um, we do tend to carry that over. The impact of adverse childhood experiences is generational, that if they are not dealt with, um, there's research showing that it then becomes generational in terms of we will then pass that on, those um, generational trauma onto our own children, and then they will pass it on to their own children. So really that's another incentive particularly for men who are wondering should I should I not because I know for most men because of the sense of responsibility that we carry uh, passing inflicting um, inflicting damage on the next generation inadvertently is not something that a lot of us will want to do so that could be another reason actually to think that I'm not only doing it for myself I'm doing it for my children I'm doing it for my grandchildren I'm doing it for their own children as well yeah, and I think something that I've certainly 
um, experience when working in areas of deprivation um, is that people haven't always had their own male parenting experience um, and what's been really nice is when there's been males in the community who have kind of stepped up to kind of try to be a positive role model and I think that's really really important um, what's your experience of that so that, that, that's that's um I, I totally agree on on that count as well that um, the responsibility of males in in society um, particularly if one is a male who has managed to go through the rite of passage and um, you've you've got some things wrong, but you've also got some things right. And you're now at a place where, for one reason or the other, most people don't choose choose to be like that. But for some reason or one reason or the other, people then look up to you. I think it's important to then extend the definition of parenting. So beyond biological relationships, I think there's a responsibility on on the men who have managed to go through those rites of passages to look out for young people in your community who might be rootless, rootless in terms of they have no roots because there's no father figure in their lives. That's one thing that the Tripod Cambridge and Wellbeing Hub, for instance, looks out for in terms of um, quite a lot of young men through that hub that I've been able to connect with, some of them that I didn't have um, one-to-one sessions with in terms of just really helping them to have somebody who... Who, who is a grounding factor in their lives and who creates a sense of safety to be able to uh, help them to consider things, to reflect and, um, and help them to join their own thoughts without being critical and, uh, yeah. Such important stuff. So tell us a bit more about the Tripart Care Mind Gym. How did you come to start putting that together? Yeah, that's that's quite um, an interesting question. And the reason is because it, it was quite a dramatic way. So just talking about the benefits of social media, because some people knock social media and say, oh, it's all rubbish. But but there are benefits to social media. We met on social media, for instance. So my friend, um, during the sec- just about the time we were entering into the second lockdown, was about September 2020. She puts up a post about another um, story she's had about holding her son from jumping off from um, a high-rise building. So they, they lived in a high and, and that was really, and I read that and I thought, oh my God, um, I've always been thinking about doing something for young men, um, particularly from young men who are um, from ethnic minority backgrounds. And this might be the, my, my, my opportunity. So I sent her um, an inbox message and say, actually, I read your post and it just feels, you know, sometimes you read something and it just feels like it's all personal. You feel that it's almost like destiny is calling my name, like you've got to do something now, do it now. So um, I sent her a message and said, uh, that really strikes me. And then she gave, gave me the details. And at that point, I then thought, okay, let's put out a, I, I was going to put out a post and I did. I said, please inbox me if you're a parent who has a child who is struggling with mental difficulties at the moment or distress, let's know um, if you you would be interested in meeting. And that was my opt-out clause. Uh, I'm being very transparent here. My thinking was nobody's going to respond anyway. And then I would have satisfied my conscience. I I put out the post out there, nobody responded. 
and I was inundated with inbox messages. So I knew, okay, now you have to do something. And so we, we had this first Zoom meeting, February 2021, where people came together and we just said, this is an open session. And the, the attendance to start with Saturday morning, I was surprised how many people turned up and the stories. So that was when we thought, okay, yes, there is a bed there's a need here. And that's how it progressed. Yeah. So. Great. So it's all online, is it? It's it's all online. Um, we meet by Zoom, and um, it's usually the last Thursday of the month, um, and it's usually from seven pm till nine pm. Is this over eighteens? What is there an age spread or a range that you can cater for? Very interesting question. Because when the when this the call when the Zoom session started, it was targeted at eighteen to thirty five year olds. But then I began to get messages from parents who said, oh, you have been ageist here. <laughs> you should really be catching for the parents as well. So these days, what happens is that um, there's no age um, there's no age restriction. But we then have the gym courses. The gym courses are targeted. So it's a six-week course where we discuss issues of identity. We discuss issues of, of um, finding your purpose, um, having having a sense of what am I here for, um, dealing with issues of depression, stress, anxiety, and all of those. And that's ring-fenced for the 18 to 35-year-olds. And is that 18 to 13, 5 uh, males, or is that males yeah, and yeah. females? Oh, uh, males and males. females, yeah. Males and, males females. and females, okay, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, and, you know, I think, well done, well done. Exactly. And I know before we started talking, we were we were talking about actually this going over and above monetary compensation for the work that we do this is you know in your words this is like a calling this is because you you really care about alleviating distress in people yeah that, that, that's that's an interesting conversation we were having wasn't it because i think in order to continue to be a mental professional there must be and to do it well you, you must see beyond just something that pays the bills. Uh, there must be a sense of calling, a sense of purpose that this is something that I'm caught out to do. And, and, and it's also a privilege. It's also a blessing to be able to do it because I feel that when we see the transformation that you spoke that you've eloquently spoke, spoken about today, the, the way people move on in their recovery journey, some men confiding in you that if they hadn't met you, they would have taken their lives. There's no pay packet that can pay for that. Uh, um, I think it's far beyond. So there must be a sense of purpose and calling that um, drives us and keeps us going. Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. And I have that. I think it's the way I've been raised by my dad, who um, sadly is no longer with us. But he kind of had the the belief that if you can do something for someone, then you should. And I guess I've probably got some of that in myself as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 yeah. That, that, that's my ethos as well, that if you if it's a privilege to be able to do, to be in that position. Um, I think sometimes, because we live in society where sometimes we look at, we're almost programmed by media and by all sorts of messages to make us look at life in the half full or half empty glass um, view when we are looking at the things that are going wrong. But if you're in a position to be able to do anything, uh, it's a position of privilege and it's a blessing to be able to do that. Um, and I think that's something 
that we should all all do that, that's um it, 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 it we are the ones that benefit at the end of the day really yeah it's definitely it's a two-way street isn't it absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you so much for your time dr ajay it's been really really lovely speaking with you where can people learn more about you and about the tripart care mind gym right so uh, so the tripart care um we, we've got a youtube channel actually by the same name tripart care um, um and we've got lots of videos on there where we could um where people can connect and of course on linkedin um uh, that's where I put most of my thoughts and posts. Um, I'm Dr. Tiara Diliajai on LinkedIn. Um, and we've got a website that is still just developing. There's not a lot of content there yet, but also by the same in Tripath Care. Thank you. I will make sure that I link in the show notes and with the social posts and stuff so that people can find you easily. But honestly, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I feel like I could speak to you for for days and still not be done. Um, If you had any advice for reducing burnout in the mental health professional sphere, what would that be? Um, Yeah, if if there was any advice i think it will be that one to make sure that one avails oneself of, of supervision having a peer peer support group but importantly um having a life outside of work i think that sometimes um, as health professionals it's very easy for our job to become our persona and to become our identity i think having outlets something where possibly not even doing it with people who are mental colleagues, something that makes you grounded and keeps you in touch with reality is a good thing. Such brilliant advice. Um, Thank you again for your time um, and for the important work that you're doing with your clients and with people that you may never meet face to face to. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the program. And thank you on the podcast. And thank you for doing this podcast uh, uh, to put message out there and to um, highlight and um, spotlight some of the uh, brilliant things that are going on around. Gosh, speaking to Dr. Ajay was just like soul food. It was really, really lovely. I feel really privileged to have been able to have that conversation. And I hope that you found it useful for whatever reason that you are listening to or watching this, either because you work in mental health or because you might be male or be looking at trying to help support and better understand someone who is male. What an incredible job I do. What an incredible job he does. And please know that there are people like us who work close to you. So if you need care and support, if you need guidance and nurturance, there are people out there who can help you, who will get you, who will hear you and can help make this different for you and those around you. I just love what I do. And if you love it too, please help me spread the word about this podcast. I look forward to bringing the next episode to you. Please do let me know what you think to the episodes. Come and connect with me on my social media. I am Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere. I will look forward to hearing what you think. And if you've got any ideas for future podcast episodes, please do let me know. And in the meantime, I hope you find the books useful, the Clinical Psychologist Collective, the Aspiring Psychologist Collective. And I will look forward to bringing the next episode of the podcast to you from 6am on Monday. Thanks for being part of my world. Take care.
If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast, I feel sad. You'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.